0: Welcome to Incognito the Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Fosberg, and as I am sometimes wont to do, I am flying solo on this final episode of our second season. I'd like to say a little something about the season in general, but I'll save that for the end of this episode. I will say, however, that since I began these podcast conversations last spring, I've been thinking a lot about identity. Well, (laughs) truth be told, as my bio dad and his mother used to say, I am slightly obsessed with identity, or more accurately, how we identify ourselves. Who are we? How do we identify ourselves? What aspects of our lives do we consider a part of our identity? For the past several months, I've been conducting interviews with a variety of people for this podcast. I open each episode by introducing my guest, reading their bio, and then we set out to discuss how much or How little of those bios actually inform listeners about that person's true identity. What do we really know about a person? And what is the source of that information? Sometimes it's what they themselves tell us. Sometimes it's what others say about them. More often than not, the way we judge people, or or let's say evaluate, is based solely on what we see. Or perhaps we hear a dialect, an accent, or even a different language. So many factors play a role in how we judge, evaluate, who one is. Is it ever enough information or too much to help us truly understand who someone is? Now, taking into consideration that most listeners probably already know a great deal about me, especially if you listen to the inaugural episode of this podcast where I unspool my personal story, how do you see me? Does my Big, sprawling, identity changing story tell you everything you need to know about me? And how much of that story is a part of how I see myself? And speaking of seeing, which you cannot actually do on this podcast, what does my voice tell you about who I am? Or perhaps the way I phrase things makes an impression. Even my choice of words might influence the ways in which you form a judgment about who I am. So, My current bio reads, Chicago native Michael Fosberg has spoken at nearly a thousand high schools, colleges, government agencies, corporations, law firms, and not-for-profits since 2005, utilizing his award-winning autobiographical story told in the form of a one-man play as an entry point for meaningful dialogues on race and identity. His work with groups such as the Boeing Company, United Way Worldwide, Holland and Hart, PNC Financial Services, Procter & Gamble, the U.S. Department of Treasury, and the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, is reshaping the way organizations talk about race, identity, and diversity. Michael has been a frequent guest in the media speaking on these issues, and his latest book, Nobody Wants to Talk About It, Race, Identity, and the Difficulties in Forging Meaningful Conversations, offers readers seven important tools to engage in authentic dialogue. In 2011, he published his much-lauded memoir, Incognito, an American odyssey of race and self-discovery. And he has launched a series of unique virtual e-learning programs, utilizing his award-winning play as an entry point for delving into uncomfortable conversations. Is that who I am? Or what I've done? And if it's what I've done, how much of what I've done spills over into who I am? Or am I a middle-aged, gray-haired, cisgender, biracial male who was raised by a biological mother of Armenian descent and adopted stepfather of Swedish descent? Do you see me that way? Or is this simply how I see myself? Why is it that the way I see myself is probably not the way you see me? Whose identity is it? Mine or yours? Or am I... Honest, ethical, sensitive, passionate, trustworthy, kind, thoughtful, spiritual. Are those identities or qualities? How many will you see or feel in the next, I don't know, say 15 minutes of this podcast? How many will I be willing to share with you? Or am I... A basketball junkie, a jazz vinyl lover, a Chicago hot dog, deep dish pizza, Italian beef connoisseur, a photography hobbyist, an avid reader of books. (laughs) Are you beginning to see the picture? Would you ever see me in my entirety? Or am I reviews from my performance in my one-man play, Incognito? Fosberg is enough of an eccentric personality to command the stage for a two-hour show about his own life. Yet, he's also an everyman figure, able to spark empathy as he negotiates a life full of extraordinary people and events. The Chicago Tribune. In less talented hands, such an undertaking could have come off as narcissism at its most self-indulgent. But Fosberg's gifts as a writer and actor place his story on a higher plane. The Kansas City Star. Fossberg leads us on a fascinating journey, imbuing his unusual story with wit, charm, and sharing his confusion, betrayal, and joy. He is such a sincere and talented storyteller with something meaningful to say. The Windy City Times. Am I what they say about me? Am I what you say about me? <laughs> who the hell am I? <laughs> Do you know who you are? I, have, you, have you landed on the right identity spot? Are you complete? Know yourself completely? Are, are you a finished product? One thing I think we could all agree on is the fact that we are all on some kind of a journey with identity. Whether we recognize it or not, We are continually shifting, adjusting, and balancing how we see ourselves in the world and where we fit in. The writer philosopher Joseph Campbell describes that journey as mythic. He talks about how we're all on that journey whether we like it or not, and how we must slay the dragon or be slayed. We are either open to the journey, no matter the fear of what we may discover, or we are closed and choose either to refuse to recognize it or deny it even exists. By denial, we make the journey more fraught, more difficult. The path we take may be one we've chosen, or one chosen for us. We may fight what we find, be embarrassed by it, hide it, or embrace it. Campbell said, The goal of the hero's journey is yourself. Finding yourself. And in one of my favorite quotes, he wrote... As you go the way of life, you will see a great chasm. Jump. It's not as white as you think. That inspiring quote led me to my own journey with identity and allowed me to confront my fears, demons, or personal dragons, if you will. However, quite often, people ask me why in my story that it seemed so easy for me to accept the discovery that I'm half black. Usually those asking are white. Weren't you shocked, they ask. Why did you decide to come out and tell this story so quickly, they wonder. Sometimes they even wonder why the discovery of my black family is such a big deal, implying that I look white and cannot somehow be part of both families or communities. The broader implications of these questions would seem to lean toward what might be a rejection of my entire self. A rejection of a black family that had, for years, wondered and hoped I'd reach out. A proud black family whose own light-skinned made for sometimes fraught relationships within the broader black community. Why would I reject my family, my history, my story? Might these questions imply that I should be ashamed of my blackness and therefore reject it? Are they implying that the safer path would have been to continue to pass as white. Uh, More on that in a minute. In performance and in my memoir, I grapple with the implications of growing up white, then suddenly discovering I'm black or half-black. I challenge audiences and readers as to how we judge race or blackness. I utilize stereotypes to force people to consider the ways in which we commonly judge or misjudge how we see or understand blackness. I discuss the clues laid out during my formative years and how those pieces now fit into the larger picture of self. And I ponder what a life would have been like had I been raised knowing I was black, yet looking every bit a white male. How would I have fit in. In 1957, there was a very small recognized biracial community in America. Certainly now that has changed, and I don't know if I'm not mistaken, biracial is currently the largest growing population in the U.S. Then, as now, there is still an overriding assumption that one is either black or white, but rarely do we recognize mixed. If one remembers when Obama ran for president there were echoes from some in the black community that perhaps he wasn't black enough. Glenn Beck, perhaps better known as the as a white conservative quack, <laughs> claimed Obama had a deep-seated hatred of white people even though Obama's mother and the grandparents who raised him were white. Perhaps he confused the celebratory fist bump for a black nationalist salute. <laughs> Yet Even as President Obama self-identified as black, America wasn't ready, still isn't ready, to understand and identify its biracial people. Too complicated, I don't know, too messy, too, I don't know, what, racial? I grew up not knowing the identity of my bio dad, his black roots, his rich family history dating back to slavery, with a great-great-grandfather, part of the 54th Regiment of the Colored Infantry Unit in 1864, a great-grandfather who was an all-star pitcher in the Negro Leagues, a grandfather whose name graces the science and engineering department at Norfolk State University. I was 32 when I found my father, my family. But had I been passing up to that point? Can one pass if one is unaware of one's true identity? Am, Am I passing now? Passing to pass oneself off as white and live as a European-American, white-American, is a very divisive and troublesome issue in the black community, one that perhaps deserves a deeper dive at another time on this podcast. But for now, let's try to circle back to identity. What are the things that make me who I am, how I see myself, and how I am perceived? Each of us come to understand our identities, who we are, differently. Even in an immediate family, a mother, father, son, and daughter, each person will come to their own identity in a different way. Certainly, they will all share some traits, cultural aspects, familial ties, but each person will arrive at their own unique identity in their own way. I'm repeating myself here from the last episode in season one, but this identity journey is one in which we all take part. And it is one which takes place all throughout our lives. We don't get to a certain age and think, well, that's it. I'm done. (laughs) Things are constantly changing. We are constantly changing, evolving, learning, even growing. The bigger question or issue that I'd like to address here is, how are we sharing these changes, this journey? with others? In what ways are we letting our co-workers, our boss, our clients, heck, even our friends know about the changes in the way we perceive ourselves? Telling people around us that we are expecting a child? Sure, people are probably doing that, but I don't know, if God forbid you are diagnosed with cancer and then beat it and now see a part of who you are as a cancer survivor. How many folks are sharing about that? And perhaps a broader question might be, is this something that needs to find its way into the workplace? A recent New York Times article titled, Do Not Bring Your Whole Self to Work, argues that the recent trend in HR departments is misguided. The writer strenuously argues against the concept of bringing your whole self to work. The column suggests that your interests, hopes, dreams, even fears should be left private. Just bring the worky parts to work, the article exalts. It even suggests that it's not work's job to provide for self-fulfillment or self-actualization. It's to put food on the table. Now, I, I can only speak for myself, but count me out if that is the job description for an opening I might think about applying for. Look, I get it. There are plenty of people out there working in what might be referred to as dead-end jobs. Jobs that are not fulfilling, but as the previously mentioned column might suggest, put food on the table. I also realize I am incredibly lucky to be able to do what I do for a living. I love it and am, I hope it shows, passionate about my work. But if I was working in a large office space and basically just kept my nose to the grindstone, as they say... I would not describe that as fulfilling but rather, I don't know, boring. Although there are a good number of workers who work at jobs that are indeed simply viewed as a paycheck, I'm guessing most people want more from their jobs than that. I also think there are a good number of people who understand the concept of professional behavior and how it should be applied at work. There will always be people who either do not understand the meaning of TMI, too much information or just don't know how to dial it back. But we each have agency in this as well. If you find yourself in a situation where someone is sharing or asking personal information that makes you uncomfortable, you can let them know that's not something you're willing to hear or share. We can create boundaries. Most of us do it within our personal and family relationships, and those who don't suffer the consequences. I also think that the data shows the more we feel included in our workspace, the more fulfilling the job is professionally and personally, plus the better the results are. And when I say results, let's be frank, it translates to a bigger bottom line, more profits, greater educational outcomes. So whether we do it, diversify our workplace because of money or personal satisfaction, I see it as a win-win back to our identities, my my identity. So there is another article I recently read in the New Yorker magazine titled, Becoming You. Are you the same person you were when you were a child? This essay delves into the very salient and perhaps most obvious evidence of our personal growth and changing. Are we the same at 4, 24, 44, or 74? The author asks. And the obvious answer for most is no. And yet, there are those who hear from friends and family things like, You haven't changed a bit. You're still the person I remember. And the classic, which <laughs> we would probably all love to hear more, You haven't aged a bit. When you think about how a family member might describe you as a child, I don't know, cheerful, talkative, perhaps precocious, <laughs> do you see yourself that way now? The essay mentions an autobiographical novel by the author and I'm going <laughs> to scramble this title the, the author's name Karl Uwe Knausgard in which the author questions whether it makes sense to even use the same name over a lifetime due to the magnitude of changes that take place in one's life. And there is an important observation in the essay which brings us back to the top of this podcast. The article posits We are, after all, more than our dispositions. All of us fit into any number of categories, but these categories don't fully encompass our identities. There's an important sense, first of all, in which who you are is determined not by what you're like, but what you do. How many times has that been one of the first questions we ask people when meeting someone for the first time? So, what do you do for a living? And how much information is that really providing us about who the person is? In, in some ways, it feels akin to the microaggressive question posed when someone is not easily identifiable. Where are you from? Or, what are you? So, how should we navigate identity? What ways, methods, or means will help us all understand one another better? What constitutes providing too much information or too little to have any effect on our relationships at work, in our communities? I certainly don't want to sound like I'm kicking the can down the road, but I'm not sure there is one easy answer that fits all situations. (laughs) However, I will mention one vitally important thing to abide by. As many guests have mentioned in my podcast conversations, and for what it's worth, may seem utterly simplistic, ask questions. It can't be repeated enough. If you want answers, you gotta ask questions. In my book, Nobody Wants to Talk About It, there are lists of various questions that might help uncover our respective identities. (laughs) You don't think I expected you to present a one-person autobiographical play, did you? Look, try asking things like, what are your hobbies? What is your favorite way to spend your time? What do you consider your greatest achievement? Who are your heroes? Who had the greatest influence on you when you were young? What life event has had the greatest impact on you and why? Have you ever had an aha moment in your life? And what was it? What are you grateful for? I could go on and on and on, but but start there. And if you're looking for more, order a copy of my book at the website. And here's another novel idea. Write and ask me a question. So we've come to the end of our second season, each with 10 episodes consisting mainly of interviews. I have to tell you, I'm still so jazzed by the conversations I'm having with such a wide variety of people in so many different disciplines and fields. And like, I, I can only speak for myself here, but I am taking away a great deal of valuable tools and practices from each of these episodes, and I'm hoping you are as well. We'll take a break now until after the new year when we'll line up another set of 10 incredible conversations to listen to. As always, I appreciate your listening and support, and we would love for you to rate and review the podcast, send us your comments and questions, and if you know of someone who might be a great guest, please send them our way. Of course, you can learn more about my work at our website incognitotheplay.com. That's all one word, incognitotheplay.com. And if you might be interested in either of my books, you can purchase them there. And finally, we are actively seeking sponsorship for this podcast. It takes a great deal of time to produce. So if you or someone you know, maybe the company you work for, or even a friend of a friend would like to back this work, email us and I'd be happy to talk to them about the ways in which we can collaborate inclusively. Thanks again. We'll be back after the new year. Bye. Uh-huh.